Good morning. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15, as we make our way back to this great declaration of who God is and what God has done for His people. We have been in this narrative in the book of Exodus, and we see where God continues the theme that runs through Genesis and starts with the book of Exodus, that God would be faithful to his people as they uh, grew exceedingly strong and multiplied greatly. A promise that God, command that God had given to his people back in Genesis chapter 1, fulfilled in Exodus chapter 1, and we see that fulfillment run through the first part of Exodus. As the Bible tells us, the nation of Israel had grown so large that even Pharaoh himself now is concerned. And so Pharaoh wants to destroy the children of Israel. But that plan backfires on him, does it not? God would ultimately call to himself Moses, who would serve as a type of Christ, if you will, for the nation of Israel as he brought about God's redemption for the people and would lead them ultimately out of slavery. And so Moses begins this dialogue with Pharaoh, and we remember how that goes. Pharaoh prides himself in thinking he is the most great and glorious and powerful man upon the earth. He supposes himself to be a god, but he learns real quickly that he is nothing in the face of the one true living God. He can't accomplish a thing in light of the power of Yahweh. So this battle ensues, ultimately culminating in Pharaoh letting the nation of Israel go, and he chases after them, and they get to the Red Sea. And you remember that narrative. God parts the Red Sea And the Bible says that not only does God part the Red Sea, but all of the nation of Israel, some 200 people, walk across dry land. Now, we live here in wet Louisiana, do we not? Swampy Louisiana. If you pull all the water out of the swamp today, you think you're going to drive your 4x4 truck through the middle of it and come out on the other side? Absolutely not. But the Bible says the children of Israel went through on dry land. The moment the nation of Israel gets through on dry land, the Egyptians march themselves into the Red Sea and to their own demise. We come to this text today in Exodus chapter 15, and here... Moses is going to pen a song in response to the redemption, the salvation that God has provided for the nation of Israel. In fact, these are some of the early words of Moses. We see recorded in the text of Scripture, Moses isn't going to write the Pentateuch until later But these are words that Moses would have spoken before he ever wrote the Pentateuch. So this is an early hymn that we see from Moses as he reflects on the incredible salvation that God has provided. And and from this song, we are reminded that as believers, 
It is always appropriate for us to rejoice through song for the deliverance that God has provided to you and me. Believers sing in response to the salvation that God has provided. And church family, one of my favorite things in all the world is to gather with you on Sunday morning and listen to you lift your voice and worship to this glorious and great God who is still redeeming people. And we sing in response to what he has accomplished on our behalf. Let's hear from the song of Moses as he pins these words in reflection of what God has done. Notice verses 1 and 2. Moses here offers a praise to God. Hear this praise. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Yeah, Moses has given expression to the song. But notice this isn't only a song of Moses. It's also a song of who? The people of Israel. But notice how it begins. I will sing to the Lord. It's not just Moses who's singing this song. It's also the nation of Israel who is singing this song. But notice how Moses personalizes the salvation that God brings for the nation of Israel collectively. It's not only that God has provided salvation for a collection of people, he's also provided this salvation for every individual Israelite. And thus they sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he and he alone has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Moses begins this hymn with a reflection of an offer of praise to God, and in some ways, encapsulates for us exactly why the nation of Israel should praise God. Now, he's going to get down in just a moment into some more specifics, but notice how he leaves a narrative at a higher view. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. How has God triumphed gloriously? Well, he's going to tell us in just a few moments exactly how God has proven himself to be, as he will tell us in just a moment, to be that warrior king on behalf of his people. But notice who it is that Moses is giving thanks to. Notice to whom Moses offers his praise. Perhaps he could have turned and looked at the nation of Israel and said, thank you guys, look what we have done. You guys were willing to stay up all night and fight through tiredness, and, and, and we left out of the strong arm and hold of, of Pharaoh, and, and you listened just like I told you. Look at this major feat we have accomplished. You're standing on the other side of the Red Sea, and, and you look back, and what you saw was the mighty army of Pharaoh is, is no longer. They're now at the bottom of the Red Sea. You are an incredible group of people. 
But that's not how Moses begins, is it? Moses recognizes and give praise and thanks to God for the salvation that God alone has brought to the nation of Israel. This is not an accomplishment on behalf of the nation of Israel. This is an accomplishment by the strong arm of God himself. God and God alone has triumphed gloriously. How? The horse and its rider lie at the bottom of the sea. God has overtaken the enemies of the nation of Israel, and Moses says, this is my song. This is the song that I'm going to offer him in praise of what God has done. And ultimately, what has God done? Notice the words that Moses uses. God has provided salvation. This is what's so glorious about God. This is what's so wonderful about this narrative. Not that the nation of Israel is no longer having to bake bricks. Not the fact that Israel is no longer being oppressed by Egypt. While all of those things are now true, the ultimate thing that God has provided for the nation of Israel is salvation. And friends, we are reminded from this psalm, we are reminded from this hymn, that the greatest need in all of life is salvation, is redemption from sin and our own enslavement to our own sin. And only God, God alone, is the one who has provided that salvation. And so Moses says, that truth is worthy of rejoicing in. That truth is, is worthy to reflect in praise. That truth is not only something that we notice God has done today, but look how Moses defines it at the end of verse 2. This is my Father's God. Moses is saying to the nation of Israel, this is a God that we have known. This is not a new God. This is not a new revelation of another God. This is the God of our fathers. This is a God of Abraham and of Isaac, and of Jacob, and of Joseph. And by the way, the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph is a God who has provided redemption and salvation for all of those guys throughout the narrative of Genesis. So you know what Moses is ultimately saying to the nation of Israel here? it should be no surprise that God is now acting in this same way and providing salvation. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Moses offers a praise to God here. And then notice what he praises God for in verses 3 through 12. Moses praises God because he is a warrior on behalf 
of his people. God is a warrior on behalf of his people. Listen at how Moses poetically defines what God has done for his people. Verse 3, in case you're wondering who this God is, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Now you're going to notice in just a few moments that Moses is going to reflect upon God being greater than all these other gods. And your Bible and my Bible rightly uh, places that in a lowercase g. So we know from the reading of our Bible already that there are several words that are used for God. We get El, which means God. We get Elohim, which means God. But Elohim can also mean in the plural, gods. And we see it translated that way on several different occasions. We also see this covenantal name of God. And this is what Moses is using here in verse 3. Moses is wanting the people to know that this is the same God who brought about creation in Genesis chapter 1. It's the same God who appeared to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 2, and gave his commands to Adam and to Eve and how they were to live in right relationship with God. It is the same God who created and controls creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But who is this God? He is a warrior. He is depicted as one who is going out in battle on behalf of his king, now, on behalf of his people. Now, we remember throughout the narrative of four, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, Moses has been depicting for us this battle between two gods, right? Who are they? Yahweh and Pharaoh. Pharaoh supposes himself to be the one true God. He supposes himself to be one who doesn't even have to respond to to Yahweh. In fact, you'll remember in, in Exodus chapter 4, Pharaoh even says, who is the Lord, who is Yahweh, that I should even obey him? Moses is depicting for us Pharaoh in his pride. He's scoffing at the idea that there is another divine being to whom he must pay allegiance. And notice now how Moses is going to depict for us who the true warrior king really is. It's not Pharaoh. It's Yahweh. And look how he depicts it now for us in these following verses. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers, they were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. 
You hear the pride of the enemy? I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Verse 10, yet you, God, blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. Moses, through song, is poetically depicting exactly what God, this warrior king, has done on behalf of his people and how God alone brought about the destruction of the enemies. And look how it begins in verse 4. What did God do to Pharaoh? The Bible says that God cast Pharaoh's chariots where? Into the sea. Now go back with me to the beginning of this narrative in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 1, you remember the narrative. Pharaoh is concerned about the growth of the people of Israel. He's worried that they're outgrowing the Egyptians. He's worried that they might in some ways take over. So he gives this command to to kill the firstborn. And you remember the narrative, the midwives don't respond to that. And notice verse 22 of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall do what with? What's that word? You shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Friends, do you see the divine justice of God? Exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do to the people of God, God now does to the enemies of the people of God. And by the way, Pharaoh wants them thrown into the Nile, but God cast the Egyptians into the bottom of the Red Sea. God does to his people's enemies exactly what the enemies wanted to do to God's people. And we rewind the clock back to Exodus chapter 1. And how do the Egyptians, sorry, how do the Israelites respond to what Pharaoh is wanting to do? They're fearful, aren't they? They're afraid. And so we come to Exodus chapter 2, and we see in verses 23 and 24 and 25, the people of God, they cry out to God. And the Bible tells us that God sees them. God hears them. And God responds to them. And the promise of God in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25 is being fulfilled 
has been fulfilled in Exodus chapter 14, and Moses is ultimately singing a song that is a reflection, a recounting of God's promises to his people. God and God alone has done to Israel's enemies exactly what Israel's enemies sought to do to them. He has placed them at the bottom of the sea. And how does he do it? How did Pharaoh do it? Pharaoh deploys all of the people of Egypt. If you go back to Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, he says, now to all the people of Israel. The midwives can't get it done, so I'm going to employ all of Egypt now, and you're going to join me in this journey. All of Egypt is going to be responsible for the destruction of God's people. And then think about the narrative. It progresses. And what type of army does Pharaoh have? Massive numbers of horses and chariots and weaponry. And what does God have, friends? How does God fight the battle? Notice how verse 6 tells us. Simply with your right hand. See, friends, there's more power and strength in the one strong, powerful hand of God than any earthly force could ever muster up in opposition to Yahweh's divine decrees. And it reminds us of a truth that should settle our own hearts. As we too, like the, nation of enemy, like the nation of Israel, face God's enemies at times. As we too face calamity in life, as we too face difficulty in life, Moses shows us where our hope is found. Moses shows us where our strength lies. It's not in us. It's not in you. It's not in me. So it raises the question, why are you seeking to fight your own battles in your own ways? Why are you seeking to fight battles employing the world's philosophies? Why are you seeking to fight battles employing the world's means? Friends, Israel had nothing. And in fact, we're going to go just a few short chapters in and we're going to see a battle that, that Israel had to fight. And in fact, the rest of the Old Testament is going to depict this fighting of the nation of Israel. They were constantly having to fight stronger, better more developed, more powerful armies, and, and sometimes Israel got it right, and sometimes Israel got it wrong. 
And every time Israel got it wrong, they tried to deploy their own means and their own strength and their own might. And at every single turn, they lost. Do we, do you think you're any different than Israel? Do you think you have a better weaponry? You think you have a better toolbox? You think you're more sophisticated in 21st century America? The Lord reminds us that he and he alone fights our battles, and he does so with his right hand. But this should be no surprise for the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 3, listen at verses 19 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, they will let you go. How is the Lord fighting the battles on behalf of his people? With his right hand. But Moses not only uses his right hand, he also uses the phrase, the Lord's strong arm. In fact, six times in this narrative, you'll see that phrase, those phrases used, but it's also used multiple times throughout the Pentateuch in reflection on the salvation that God has provided for his people. Listen at Leviticus chapter 11. For I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with swarming things that crawl on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. How is God bringing them up out of the land of Egypt? Simply by his right hand. Friend, would you humble yourself before God this morning? Would you quit fighting using your own strength? Perhaps it's in a difficult relationship with a coworker, a difficult relationship at home with a spouse, with a child. Would you trust God? Would you lean into Him? Would you seek refuge completely and solely and totally in Him? Why? Because He always fights on behalf of His people. And friends, this is what the totality of this hymn is reminding us of. God is fighting for his people. Look at verse 7. He depicts the destruction of the wicked. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. How does he do it? Not only with his strong right hand, God just blows through his nostrils. 
at the blast of your nostrils, the water piles up. And they say, wait a minute, pastor. I've always been taught that God is a spirit and he, he doesn't have a body, for example, like Jesus. Well, you're right. You're saying, well, how in the world does God have nostrils in which to blow smoke or wind? Well, Moses is using anthropomorphic language. He's using language that depicts humanity to teach us something about God. God doesn't literally have nostrils, but Moses is using this imagery of the nostrils of God to show us how God in this way is responding on behalf of his people. He just simply blows his, his nose and it wipes out all of these people. But not only is God blowing his nose and bringing about destruction, God blows his nose and provides salvation for his people. You see what Moses is doing? He's depicting everything that God does as easy, as being no problem. God doesn't even have to remove himself for his throne to accomplish his work on behalf of his people. Why? We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And what does God do in Genesis chapter 1 to bring about creation? He speaks. He speaks a word. He speaks a series of words. And what you and I experience to this day was given to us by a gracious, all-powerful God. And this same God from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that has the power to create is the same God in Exodus chapter 15 who is showing himself mighty to bring about peace in the midst of a storm for his people is the same God that Jesus tells us cares so well for the birds in the air and the lilies of the field and the same God that's caring for you and for me. Is there another like him? This is a question that Moses asks and sings in verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Among, the, among other divine beings, angels and fallen angels and Satan, who is like you? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And what is the answer to those questions? No one. Not you. Not me. Not your wonderful, glorious children who listen to everything that you say. Not your workplace. There is not another like Yahweh who is continually doing good deeds and wonders so that his name 
might be known among all people. Don't forget what the purpose of this narrative is all about. Several times already we've learned that God is working so that his name might be known among Israel and among the Egyptians. God is at work for his own glory and his own might and his own fame. There is no one else like this great and glorious God. He's working on behalf of his people, bringing destruction against his enemies. But notice what verses 13 to 18 tell us. God is leading his people. We begin with this imagery of leading in verse 13, and it concludes with us in this narrative in verses 17 and 18. You have led your people in steadfast love. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are like a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them, listen at this leadership, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which, you have, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever. When does God stop leading his people? Never. When does God stop responding on behalf of his people? Never. Notice how this text depicts what God will do for his people. He will lead them now, and God will lead them in the future. Notice how it says he will lead them now. You led them in your steadfast love, and then he begins to recount what God has done in history past. how he brought them out of Egypt, verse 14. Look what he's talking about now in verse 15. They come out of the land of Egypt, and how do the other people around them respond? All the various other kings are going to tremble? Not because Israel is mighty in and of herself. They know she's weak. But Israel has a God who fights on behalf of her. Israel has a God who leads on behalf of her. End of verse 16, O Lord, pass by till the peoples pass by whom you have purchased. Where are the people headed? God's people are headed to the promised land. They're on their way to Canaan land. They're on the way to the land that God had already promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And notice what Moses is recounting. God will, has, is faithfully leading his people. Now watch verse 17. 
God is going to lead his people and plant them on his mountain, the place which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. What's Moses saying to the people of Israel? God is ultimately going to fulfill his promises to you. He is going to bring you to this mountain. What mountain is it? Jerusalem. God is going to lead his people to that mountain. A place that you, God, have made for your people. And notice the word that he uses next. What does he call Jerusalem? A sanctuary. This word is used one other time in the book of Hebrews. Sorry, in the book of Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. Verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I showed you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so you shall make it. What is God wanting to do with this sanctuary? God is wanting to construct this sanctuary in the midst of his people so that it might be a permanent reminder and reflection and dwelling place of his very presence. And that's going to be accomplished, is it not? But now don't miss what verse 17 is ultimately about. And the way that we know what verse 17 is ultimately about is because of two other texts in this passage of Scripture, verse 18. What does verse 18 tell us? The Lord will reign forever. And then come down just a few verses. Verse 20. Then Miriam, and what is Miriam called? Look closely at your text of Scripture. Miriam the what? Now why is Miriam referred to as a prophetess here? What does a prophet do? A prophet communicates the word of God to God's people. But a prophet also communicates not only what God expects of his people today, a prophet also depicts for us God's promises for the future. So how in the world is Miriam, in this context, depicted as a prophetess? Well, notice verse 21. What's Miriam going to do? Moses had led the nation of Israel to sing this hymn. Now notice what the text tells us. Miriam collects all the women. And what does, what, what does Miriam lead the women to do? Verse 21 Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now Moses doesn't recount the entire hymn, 
that he just gave to us. But the implication is that Miriam now leads all of the women in the nation of Israel to recount this same prophetic hymn. And what is so prophetic about this hymn? Verses 17 and 18. See, friends, the culmination of verses 17 and 18 is a truth that points us far beyond Exodus chapter 25 or Exodus chapter 34. It's a truth that points us past Jeremiah. It's a truth that points us past Isaiah. It's a truth that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 2, for example. It's a truth that John himself John the Revelator in Revelation. It's a truth that even John himself would not experience. It's a truth that points us even past the reign of Christ and his earthly ministry. For when will God finally, completely, totally plant his people upon his own mountain? When will God finally and completely and forever reign among his people? When Jesus returns. See, friends, Moses and Miriam are considered prophets of God because they point you and me to a time that is beyond what they even knew, to a time that is not yet even for you and for me, to a time that even only John could reflect upon and hope for and wait for to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you, just real quickly from from Revelation, the exodus of the New Testament, the fulfillment of the psalm song of Moses. Moses, by and large, recounts for us in this song two eternal truths. He celebrates two things the destruction of God's enemies and the salvation of God's people. And I want you to see that giving thanks to God for both of these is consistent with the very nature of who God is. Look with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation as we recount how Revelation itself images for you and for me the praise of the destruction of the enemies of God. Let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, 
he will also do what? Drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of the tor- torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. And then look at Revelation chapter 19. Verses 17 through 21. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the, all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great, And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in the presence, who is in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. See, friends, ultimately, the destruction of the nation of Egypt prefigures for you and me the destruction of all of God's enemies. And the question is, who is an enemy of God? Friend, if you're here this morning and you reject Jesus as Lord, if you're here today, I don't care how moral you might be, what a great citizen of this earthly world you might be, if you reject Jesus as Lord, you are an enemy of God. And did you see that image from Revelation chapter 19? Oh yes, one day you will gather with all of the kings of the world and you will think that in your own might and in your own strength you will overcome the great I am, but you will fail. You'll be destroyed. Like Satan, you will be thrown into the lake of fire. This hymn celebrates the destruction of the enemies of God. Revelation depicts for us the destruction of the enemies of God. But this hymn also rejoices in the salvation that God provides for His people. And we see that same rejoicing in the book of Revelation. Stay with me. Stay with me in the book of Revelation and look with me to chapter 7. And then we'll go to chapter 19 to the beginning of chapter 19. Chapter 7, verse 9. 
And after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their four, and the, sorry, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God. Why? For he reigns forever and ever. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on his throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of them will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the spring, springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And look at chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, depicts this rejoicing in heaven. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude of heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged a great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality. He's rejoicing in the destruction of the enemies of God and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This, my friends, are the songs of eternity in which we will join Moses in giving thanks to God for all of eternity that he has triumphed gloriously over his enemies and brought his people to salvation. Is this the God that you've pledged your life to? Is this the God that you're committed to follow? Is this the God you're committed to serve? Is this the God you're committed for all of eternity to worship? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you 
for the truth of this incredible hymn that reminds us of your glorious works. And we would ask this morning that as we recount those glorious works, of your actions in the past, Lord, we might see your glorious works in our lives today and hope for that glorious work in the future. We thank you for being a God who is always fighting on behalf of your people. And this morning in humility, Lord, we bow before you with hearts full of gratitude and we say thank you, God, for fighting on our behalf. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning, friend? And in your own heart and mind, would you join Moses in giving thanks to God for the salvation that he has brought to you? Would you rejoice that he has overcome your sinful flesh? Would you rejoice and give him thanks that he's brought you from death to life? Would you rejoice that through the gospel, God has opened your eyes to the truth of Christ and by faith brought you salvation? as you rejoice this morning in the salvation that God has brought you, would you pause for a few moments and pray for those that are in your sphere of influence that you know are enemies of God? People that you know reject Jesus as Lord. Would you pray for their salvation? Would you ask God by His Spirit to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment? And friend, if that is you this morning, I urge you, where you're seated, to cry out to God. Confess to Him that you need redemption. Confess to him that you are a sinner in need of a savior. Confess to him that you believe that he is Lord, that he is God. Pledge to him your life, that you will live for him. And let us all today hope for the final culmination of God's promise to us in the return of Christ. Would you pray for the return of Christ today? Would you hope in it? Would you find comfort in it? Would you take joy in it? In just a few moments, friends, we're going to stand and respond corporately to the preaching of of God's Word as we stand and sing.
As we sing, perhaps you're here and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Please feel free to come forward and and ask us, what does it mean to trust in Christ? We'll be glad to share with you. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak with one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you. Ask someone who's seated around you. They would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like one of us to pray with you that the truths of this text might resonate in your heart and your mind, might be a means of comfort to you. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed it upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.